Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art Scoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from artists to authors. And it's a pleasure to spend some time today speaking with Risa Puno, a well-known installation artist and sculptor who creates large-scale public artworks that address social issues. Hi, thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. So first things first, are you and your family members doing okay? Yeah, we're doing fine. Real lucky compared to a lot of people. So are you able to go outside, do a little exercise? What's your daily routine like? Um, I, uh, I honestly haven't left our apartment in almost two weeks, but that's mm-hmm. because I have like a little bit of a sore throat and, um, and I figure just in case it is, I mean, it's probably cold or something, but just in case I don't want to, I don't want to infect anybody. Yeah. So I'm just self-quarantining. I hope you're feeling better soon and glad to have you here today. And thanks for making time. <laughs> Let's give everybody a sense of your background. You grew up in Louisville. Did I say that correctly? Louisville, Kentucky? <laughs> Louisville, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that and then your studies at Brown and NYU after that. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I grew up uh, there. I have uh, one brother and we both grew up with my parents who are physicians. They immigrated from the Philippines. And so we grew up in Louisville and my background is actually not in art. I was supposed to be a spine surgeon. Um, a in fact, spine I, I went- surgeon. Yeah. I went to Brown University in their eight-year medical program. I was very much into it. I authored a couple of research papers that were published. My summer job was harvesting spines from fresh cadavers. I didn't actually even take art in high school. But when I got to Brown, since I already had entrance to their med school, they encouraged us to be well-rounded. And so I was like, this is my chance. And so <laughs> I, you know, I became an art major. And of course, I fell in love with it. And yeah, after that, there was like no turning back. I applied to grad school. I got into NYU. So I moved to New York City. I don't specifically make artwork about like medical issues or anything like that, but I think it does affect my process. Like, I think I have a little bit of a lab like approach. I don't know, I'm, I'm like a tinkerer, you know, and I think combined with that, yeah, I like a lot of math. Um, and so I, I tend to build things that way. My process does involve a lot of like taking notes. And when I say I have a lab-like approach, it's like if I'm trying to have a certain effect or I'm trying to get one thing done, I'll set up a set of circumstances and I'll change one thing. And if that variable doesn't do it, then I'll change it back and change another thing and I'll take notes along the way. And I do a lot of prototyping. So it, it expresses itself more like that. And then also I think because I don't come from a family of artists, making art accessible to people from all different backgrounds is really important to me. Like I don't want someone to feel intimidated when approaching my artwork. And so I think that's something that that expresses itself that way too. Certainly. That's a huge part of the way your your work comes across and your body of work is so much as we'll be talking about social interaction. You have, of course, achieved real acclaim with international exhibitions and coverage in various sources from NPR to the New Yorker, the New York Times. But you're still young in your wildest imagination as you continue your process. Where would you most like to see your work experienced? Oh, man, this is like, I mean, to tell you the truth, my dream for like 
10 years was to work with creative time, you know? And so um, I was at the MoMA actually listening to Paul Ramirez Jonas talk about his key to the city project and it had just happened. And so I didn't actually get to see it. But at the time I had already started making interactive artwork and a lot of people were telling me like, you should make public artwork. Like I, I had done my first public artwork in 2009 but it was really hard because a lot of the things I were, was making were things that had loose components that you can't just like leave in a park. And it was tough to figure out where my place was within the art world. And seeing what he did with that piece, I, I was just so excited by it. And I was like, how do you get to do stuff like that? And then I realized it was produced by Creative Time. So I, was, I became obsessed with them. It was honestly a dream that I thought maybe one day, but probably never. And then they had their first ever open call And so, yeah, so I put everything into applying for that. So when you ask me where would I like to see my work experience now, it's it's almost hard to imagine because there were so many things that I didn't even think to dream of. Because of the project with Creative Time, I was on like the cover of the art section of the New York Times. Like my, my little face was on the front front page, which I would have never, never dreamt. So Nobody, now, like if you had asked me, yeah. So now so, you're on a so plateau now, and how do you get higher? I, I mean, yeah, I don't even know, but I mean, sure. Do I have dreams? Always, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'd love to show at, um, there's also museums I'd love to show at, like PS1, MoMA, Tate, Whitney. Um, I think my dream park in New York City is Madison Square Park to do an installation for. Sure. I mean, in, in like a dream, dream scenario, I would love to do a Park Avenue Armory installation, but you know, you never know. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't say you never know. Let's just say it seems like it's a matter of time for you because you've hit the stride <laughs> so early and you have so much to offer. You've done quite a few important projects. In 2008, you built the Course of Emotions, which is a mini golf course with holes based on negative feelings like jealousy and frustration. How was that received? Tell us a bit about that project. Sure. People love miniature golf generally. So that one was, um, it, it was well received. In 2008 was the first time um, I had like a sort of big solo show installation thing. That was at Monmouth University. Um, and then that piece was actually recommissioned for outdoors by the Department of Transportation for um, summer streets where they shut down Park Avenue on Saturday mornings for cars. And like everybody can come out like walking, bicycling. Uh, that was in 2013. And that was kind of crazy because we um we started installing at like midnight installed throughout the night opened it at seven in the morning on saturday had it open until one deinstalled, and then did it the next saturday and then the next saturday after that and it was so popular that i got brought back the next year again three saturdays in a row so that was now i feel like i'm i I don't i don't think i can do overnight installs anymore but um (laughs) but i really liked that work i think it's first of all super fun to be to have like a miniature golf course on park avenue it was park avenue and 51st street right so usually it's like people in suits walking around on their way to work but to have it be this sort of rainbow colored spot of joy was already like a fun novelty and then you come up and you realize all of the obstacles are emotional obstacles that you have to deal with um which made it a double twist on it which was fun some of the some of the holes were actually trying to induce the feeling like for example frustration was par 40 maze that literally spelled the word frustration and so in order to get through it it was actually easier if you turned your putter around and used the handle and some people would just put their heads down and and battle through it. Some people would be like, I can't deal with this. Like, I'm going to like 
try and chip the ball over. And some people were like, no way. They would just skip the whole. I feel like that sort of shows how we deal with frustration, like how different people deal with it. And then one of my favorite moments, despair, was a hole where there was sort of like a ring around a cylinder. The cylinder had the hole, the goal at the top, right? And so it was a par infinity. So because you're just going around the cylinder and you can't get to the top. But the things that people did to get around it, like they'd often like a friend would help them pick it up with their putter or they would borrow a putter from a friend, which I think is indicative of how, you know, it helps to have friends help you out to get through despair, right? There was this one time where there's a father and a daughter playing the whole anxiety. And and the daughter says to her dad, she's like, daddy, what's anxiety? And he's like, well, you know, before your dance recital and you have like butterflies in your stomach? And she's like, uh-huh. And he's like, well, that's kind of like anxiety. And she's like, oh, okay. And I thought that that was a fun thing, like to be able to talk about that and to talk about how it related to the hole that I made. I mean, honestly, I could go on forever about the narrative potential of miniature golf because I feel like the ball itself becomes an avatar for yourself because it's like if somebody bumps your ball with their ball, you don't say your ball bumped mine. You say you bumped me, right? So the ball is is already a substitute. And, and so you have the obstacles that are in the way to your goal, right. right? Your goal at the end. And then on top of it, you have the fact that the obstacles have a sculptural presence, right? On the human scale. And so I like that it operates on many different levels like that. Were you present for so much of this yourself? Oh, I was on site. I was on site all the time. In fact, that's, um, that's one of my favorite things about making interactive artwork is, is seeing people use it. I, I truly believe that my work, it's not done until somebody uses it. Like that whole, like if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? Well, like my trees don't make a sound unless somebody's around to hear it. Right. And so that, that's my favorite because I think people bring so much of themselves to it. It feels very generous on their part to sort of trust the yeah. thing I put in front of them and, and to accept it and to bring it into their everyday lives and to use it is the best. You did another project called Common Picnic, and that was on Governor's Island. Tell us about that one, 2015, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was with Figment. And that one was, it was supposed to be there all summer. And so there were some challenges when they put out the open call. They said it had to be able to last all summer. It had to be modular because it had to be able to be brought onto site and assembled there. And there's all these extra things, like when you're working in that space on Governor's Island, you can't go deeper than four inches into the ground, you know, and it had to be interactive, but not climbable. And it was this this whole thing. So it was on top of just the logic engineering problem, which was kind of fun to deal with. There's also this thing about Governor's Island where it's technically part of Manhattan, right? Um, Like when you're on it, you can see, you can see like the Freedom Tower, you can see the skyline, but you take this boat to get there, this ferry, and it's only a five minute ride, but because you do that and then you get in this place where cars are are generally not allowed, right? And there's all these like rolling grassy hills. So it feels idyllic, but it's still part of Manhattan. That sort of dichotomy was really interesting to me. And so I wanted to take a iconic piece of leisure, like a picnic table and express what it's like to be in a city, right? So we're all like crammed together. So I made all these interconnected picnic tables where it's like, if you sat on this one part, it was like you were sharing 
a table and or a bench with somebody else. That was just how the configuration yeah. worked out. But you coerced people to be put together. Yeah, put them together. But that's the thing, right? Because it's like when you put people together, they may be competing for space or it can be a way to bring people together. And that's general. That's how this piece operated. Um, one, because everybody's already in the leisure mindset. Because the word picnic at its origin, right? It wasn't about the food. It was actually about the gathering. Like that's what that word meant at the beginning. And so that's what I kind of wanted to honor. And so to activate this artwork, I held community potluck picnics mm -hmm. throughout the summer where people would be able to bring food and stories to share with anyone. I mean, at the time it was super fun. I mean, sure. now that would be like a nightmare, but, uh, yeah. but then it was, it was really fun. More recently, you created an escape room project called the privilege of escape. Give us some mm -hmm. sense of that if you would. That's a project I did that was produced by Creative Time in 2019, where I applied through the open call with this project, and they chose it. It is an escape room-inspired public art experience that was designed to address issues of social privilege and systemic inequity. Um, so an escape room, for people who aren't as nerdy as me, um, an escape room is this sort of group activity where, like, it's usually coworkers, family members, friends, something like that, where you're in a room and there's a timer and you're supposed to solve all the puzzles before the time runs out. And usually it's got crazy themes like you're locked in a room and a serial killer is going to come back and murder you in exactly 60 minutes. Uh, but for some reason, he left you all these puzzles that you can get out with, like things like that. And, and I think for me, I felt this weird thing. On one hand, I loved I loved the escape room thing, like being a total nerd. It was like a nerd sport, right? Which I thought was super fun. But at the same time, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't understand these themes at all. And on top of it, it's like the activity of paying money to have problems added to your life just to see if you can solve them for fun was crazy. I mean, it speaks so much to privilege, right? And so I, I was interested in the idea of like thinking about what are the things that we want to escape in life? And thinking about how even just the idea of escape is privilege in and of itself, right? The belief that you can get out of a harmful or uncomfortable situation, that hope and, and the means to do that is a privilege. And so I, I just felt like those things somehow made sense to do together. Right. Also, the fact that like escape rooms even though they're silly games, you feel very real emotions in there. Like you feel confusion, you feel frustration, you feel anxiety because of the clock ticking down. And then once you solve something, you feel like a genius, even though it's like you're just doing what they want you to do, right? You feel like MacGyver, Magellan, like you're like coming up with crazy things. And then when you win, I mean, I literally have like goosebumps on my face right now thinking about it. It's like you- Or maybe it's for you, it's spine tingling. <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely, right? And it's really interesting how it brings out different people's personalities, even within the room. Like there's sort of stereotypes of, of, of the, the roles that people take on when they play. And all of that just seemed like so rich in terms of addressing and being able to create emotional goals by, by using that format. Risa, it sounds now kind of like an age ago, you've made work that is supposed to be touched and inspired by games and play. And here we are in this disconnected world where the as yet 
unknown longer-term impact of COVID-19 is playing out. For your practice as an artist who so reliant on participatory platforms, do you wait this out? How do you focus on this today? Yeah, well, I think on an individual level, I mean, honestly, I'm just in the middle of damage control. You know, everybody's stuff is getting postponed or canceled. And so just trying to figure out what that does for my budgets, what does that do for like needing longer storage for artwork that was going to show and, and stuff like that. So I think right now that's where I am, but I'm very interested in seeing how this affects people in general. Like, I think that the things that inspire me are other people, how they choose to connect, how they interact, how they play. And so I've been just sort of in a weird way, sort of collecting data about that and just trying to understand what are our needs right now, especially with making interactive artwork. You're, you're often like sort of making a tool or filling a need. What are our needs right now? And what are the things that are coming out of this that are unexpected? Like for me, doing all these like video meetings and stuff like that, on one hand, you feel incredibly disconnected from people. But on the other hand, there's this very strange level of intimacy that you have, like being able to see into people's homes you know, like, yeah. like I'm having meetings. I had, I gave the living room, like we live in a one bedroom. So I, I gave the living room to my partner so, so he could work in there and I'm now in the bedroom. And so anybody who chats with me on video, they can see like my bed in the background. I've been really good about making my bed <laughs> because <laughs> people are seeing into that. And it, it's weird. Like there's people who I've never met before and I can see into their homes, you know, and, and I'm, I'm still just figuring out how how people are dealing with that like i think artists often spend a lot of time alone right i spend a lot of time alone even if i make participatory artwork it's like most of my like brainstorming researching like application writing most of that stuff happens like in my com in front of my computer by myself yes. right uh -huh. yeah um and so in terms of my friends who are artists i mean it's it's whether or not they can get to their studios i think that's a bigger deal sure. and then whether or not like whether or not they're able to pay rent, like there's sort of bigger issues there yeah. in terms of the community that I have exposure to that has really been jumping on the connection and, and the outreach and figuring out new ways to gather actually for me has been like the gaming community. I actually sure. played an online game of Dungeons and Dragons the other day. Yeah, that's um, cool. Oh. Yeah. And I played like a online escape room, but like not like a video game, like as in there was a camera like looking at the locks and and the the clues were all like on Google Drive. It's this company called U Escape. There's a guy Nick in Greece who who's been running this for a while, but now he's like super busy. I'm very interested in seeing what people do to cope and to connect right. and to find out how to participate in each other's lives because I think people do still crave that connection. And after this, I don't know. Once people feel safe again to walk out part of me, maybe it's just wishful thinking, but I feel like people are going to be craving more of that tactile in-person thing, but I don't know, maybe, or maybe people would have found ways that they prefer otherwise. I'm not sure. Yeah. One wonders if handshaking will ever really return. I'm curious though about museums because they represent a box that you would be confined in and they're going through triage as they think about public access and the safety of their staff and volunteers and the like. So when your work addresses privilege and social equity, I'm curious about how that intersects with your belief in what museums can offer. And you've mentioned you'd like to work with museums more, but is there a challenge about how museums operate, are funded, governed, and your premises around social equity and privilege? 
It's tricky, right? It's a little bit like democracy. Democracy is not perfect. There are issues with it. It's at least America's best assumption of what it wanted, right? And and we're trying to work through that. I think with museums, I think there's some really great things. I do think there's some problematic things, but I don't think it's necessarily museum specific. I think that's with a lot of larger institutions. Um, I think a lot of it is founded on centering things like whiteness, maleness, heteronormativity. I think a lot of, most of them are, are trying to work through that, work past that, trying to find ways to be inclusive. It's tricky because, I mean, I, I don't know anything about the back-end administrative um, directorial views of museum life, but I can only speak as a visitor and as an artist. As a visitor, on one hand, it draws all kinds of people, right? Because it's like, if you're a tourist or, or somebody who doesn't know that much about art, but you want to go see art, a lot of times you don't know what gallery to go to, or you don't know what show to go to, but you know about the Met, you know about the moment, you know about the Guggenheim, right? And so you will go there. And so it, it draws a lot of different people to it, which I think is amazing, right? I think that the, the amount of people that museums have access to is already a lot more than a lot of art right. organizations. But I do think it's still only a small section of the population that feels comfortable doing it, that can afford it, that knows that there's times where you can go, where you don't have to pay. So right. I think that that's tricky. And as an artist, it's tough, even just to be known enough so that a museum would want to show your work. Privilege comes in, into it a lot of different ways. I mean, in terms of economic privilege, the fact that I don't have to work three jobs, two jobs, you know, in fact, this is my first calendar year not having a day job tricky time to stop your day job. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, because of that and my comfort, I feel like I'm able to take certain risks that a lot of people aren't right. able to take, you know, right. like making public art, temporary public artwork, the way that the fees are done, right? It's like often it, at most you'll get maybe half up front unless you can stagger your projects so that the last project somehow covers the other one where you don't get your final fee till you deinstall, it can be really tricky. And I, the unexpected think, can intrude, like your project, Good Faith and Fair Dealing, which was opened at Arts Brookfield in Brooklyn's Metrotech earlier this month, just as the virus was beginning to take hold. That project is one that you got started, and now it needs to be restarted, presumably, yes? Yeah, well, I mean, it's still there, you know. Um, I assume the building is not open because uh, it's in the lobby of an office building. But yeah, it's still there. In fact, I installed it on March 7th. So we were already starting to get scared in the U.S. at that point. And so when we installed it, we put a little table next to it with Clorox wipes. We wanted to have hand sanitizer, but everywhere was out. We couldn't get any, right? And so we put Clorox wipes there so that people could wipe down. And we had like an agreement for maintenance where it would be wiped down like every day, all yeah. the touch surfaces and stuff. But I did get scared and I did think, what is my responsibility? Like, I think this was sure. um, something that restaurant people thought, you know, it's like, how do you continue what you're trying to do, but also not encourage behavior that makes this worse? So the way you interact with it is you're both standing at opposite ends of this thing. And I think you are actually six feet apart, but still you're, you're touching the same, you're touching surfaces that other people will have touched. Which, and it's, it's based on the maze game Labyrinth, right? Is that yeah. Yeah. Labyrinth being the one where you're like trying to get a ball through a maze without 
it falling into holes. And my version is larger. It's like the size of a pool table. And there's two mazes. They're identical and they're on the same tilting surface. So as players, you can choose to try and get both your balls to your respective goals and work together or compete. And that one was actually a really fascinating piece in terms of when I first installed it, the handles were a little different. Like instead of being right on top where the maze is, they came up from the sides. So it was like the mechanism wasn't as clear to the players and they were really fighting each other. It became all about trying to overpower each other. They were literally shearing the heads off screws. During like the first <laughs> opening, I had my like impact driver and my tutu skirt. And I was like freaking out because because they kept like getting loose because people were just breaking them. But then when I changed it and put the handles on top so you could see that all of the handles were right on the same tilting surface, all of a sudden, without any instruction, everyone was much more likely to cooperate. It was like, as long as people understand their role within a larger system, and they understand that their actions affect another person, they are much more likely to cooperate. The tricky thing with that game, though, is since I'm a jerk, you know, I, I actually uh, painted, oh, this is like a secret. Well, here we go. Um, I actually painted the different maze sides with a different brand of paint, knowing that like the coefficient of friction would be different. Oh so even God. if you're trying to cooperate, your balls are going to sort of end up in different places. So All right. the there aren't point too many it, artists who talk about coefficient. So I <laughs> You're leaving me in the dust here. It's well, I basically just wanted to set it up in a way that it forced people to have to negotiate and forced people to have to talk about how to get on the same page, how right. to get both their balls to the place where they could navigate around the holes, you know? So, and so with the pushing and pulling, though, you mentioned earlier the challenges for any artist who is making effectively public art, how to support their work and themselves. And you've raised funds through Kickstarter for some projects. How about the traditional art market? How does your work find a footing there? And what are your aspirations in that regard? I mean, I'm, I'm still working on that one. Um, um, yeah, I think it's, it, the tricky thing is, I don't know anybody who's, who wants to buy like a nine hole miniature golf course, you know, or like a big obstacle course or like a 3000 square foot escape room experience. So I think for me, most of the funding comes through open calls, grants, things like that. They're commissions for specific pieces of work by institutions, which again, I'm, I'm super grateful for. I think that there are things that I would love about being an artist that is more traditionally like collected. And then there are things that I'm grateful to not have to deal with. You know, I think there's pluses and minuses to everything. For some people that work with galleries, it's like they're really excited to make this thing. They make it, people love it, but then they want to move on to something else. And I've heard several stories where their gallerists are kind of like, well, there's a waiting list for this. So we need more of this thing, right. you know, and it, it becomes a tricky thing as an artist to not get to follow what you want. But then on the other hand, it's like those people at least the, the ones that, are, that have like waiting lists aren't dealing with supporting their work through a day job. You know, I think it, it all depends on what you want to make and who it's for, right? I love the idea of it being so part of people's everyday lives that they live with it. But at the same time, it's like when somebody owns it, then like nobody else gets to experience it. I love that dynamic and the way you think about creativity and authorship and ownership. It's refreshing in a very commercial age to hear the way you describe <laughs> your goals and your achievements. And it's exciting to learn a little bit more about your work. I know after today's conversation, people will be really eager to see online 
in their private residence, how <laughs> your work has taken shape. So tell us a bit, how can listeners online follow your activities and your works in the past? Sure. Um, well, if they want to see my past work, um, they can go to my website, which is just my name, Risa Puno, R-I-S-A-P-U-N-O.com. And that's also, Risa Puno is also the handle for all social media, like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. And I don't know, lately I've been posting some pictures of my older work just to sort of be like, look at gathering, look what it was like when we could be together. Um, but I also post lots of stories and stuff like that. So yeah. That's great. I so appreciate you making time today to go through a bit of what you've accomplished today and give everybody a sense of where you're heading, which is through the stratosphere, I'm sure. So <laughs> thanks for making time for today's conversation, Risa. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're so welcome. We've been speaking today with Risa Puno, a well-known installation artist and sculptor who creates large-scale public artworks that address social issues. And until next time, this is Max Anderson of Art Scoping.